what you can really do by investing in customer feedback is that you can very quickly change the conversation. If you can really just spin up a test and come back with data, then suddenly it's not about my opinion versus your opinion. It's about here's an idea, here's some data on how users responded, and based on that data, what actions are we going to take? I think the most important thing is you can just fundamentally change the discussion and change the conversation by basing it on data as opposed to someone's feelings or opinions, you know, which is an entirely different world. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi everyone, I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing, and today we're very excited to have Andrew Fru joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Andrew is the SVP of User Experience at Health Catalyst. Thanks so much for joining us today, Andrew, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Janelle. It's an honor to be talking. Awesome. So uh, you're currently SVP of user experience at Health Catalyst. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about your company, uh, your role, and maybe even how that role has evolved over time? I had the pleasure of being a part of Health Catalyst for almost eight years now. And uh, so Health Catalyst, it's a data and analytics company. So we work primarily for large healthcare organizations. So, you know, there's a lot of data that flows through healthcare ever since the advent of electronic medical records. And, uh, you know, a lot of that data is being stored, but is is sort of sitting uh, in in like a warehouse somewhere. And, uh, and Health Catalyst, you know, as much as we're a data company, We like to think of ourselves uh, as an outcomes company, Um, you know, so for example, you could kind of think about it as uh, we're collecting all this data, but ultimately we want to be able to work with our customers to enact outcomes like how can we reduce the length of stay for patients with such and such a, a condition or in such and such a department. And so you know, I mean, our, our business is certainly data and analytics, but at the end of the day, um, the way that we measure ourselves is, uh, you know, in quality of life improvements or lives saved. In a lot of ways, it's it's actually not too dissimilar from the way that uh, user testing tries to provide a data-driven approach to design. Uh, we try and bring a data-driven approach to healthcare. Yeah, that, I, I, I love the way you framed that up and it, it makes a lot of sense. Can you tell us a little bit about your role as SVP sure. of user experience? Yeah, yeah, right. Great question. I was the basically designer number one uh, at Catalyst. So when I started, it was really specifically focused on an individual um, product. It was kind of right as Health Catalyst was starting to sort of turn a corner from being, I guess, what you would consider more of a services company to being more of a products company. Probably worth mentioning that we do kind of still have a split house in some ways, uh, services and products. We were really sort of starting our journey um, down being a products company. And so, like I say, I mean, I started really focused on... um, on the design of a specific product, but it became pretty clear pretty early on that there was a need for this in other places around the company. So I sort of started functioning a little bit like kind of like a miniature agency um, within Health Catalyst, uh, sort of like uh, as a designer working with a lot of different teams. You know, little by little, uh, it became a matter of sort of fashioning the work that we were doing into standards um, that could be applied across the company. And then, you know, as as we became more of a design-centric organization, um, 
building that design culture, bringing uh, other designers into the mix. Um, and and for a good portion of our time as a product company, we functioned with a kind of decentralized model um, where I kind of sat uh, in the middle, um, kind of looking over design across Catalyst. And then we had individual designers who sat on specific product teams who were, you know, reported up through that product team's organization. And we had like a dotted line relationship to each other. But it's only been really in the past year or so where we realized that there were just a, a lot of efficiencies um, kind of being lost as the company grew. And there were, you know, pockets of the company where design just didn't have a uh, uh, reach into. Um, and we realized that if we came together as a centralized team, there were more opportunities to kind of expand, you know, to scale a little bit more. And so so now um, we're a centralized UX team. Um, our designers all kind of have primary responsibilities. So a lot of the who, the teams that they were reporting to before still tend to be their primary um, focus. We've been really happy to see the way that coming together as a centralized team has just accelerated the knowledge sharing, the collaboration between our different designers. It's one of these things that's so intangible, but has been really um, encouraging to see just the way that something is like, that seems as like uh, trivial as like an official relationship versus, versus a dotted line relationship can change the way that like a team interacts with each other. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we are right now. And um, so, yeah, I kind of sit uh, at the top of that. And then, you know, we have our design team um, within there and, Continuing, continuing on our journey as a growing a design organization within Health Catalyst. Yeah, that's amazing that you've actually had that journey of starting out as, you know, the sole designer and then <laughs> going through and evolving to through the different models, almost, you know, while being part of that whole growing up, if you will. Yeah. And I mean, you and I had talked about this at one other point. And I think the thing that's been so interesting about that for me is that like over the course of my tenure at Health Catalyst, it really doesn't feel like I've worked for the same company um, the whole time. Like we've, I mean, we were about 200 people um, when I started and we're almost 1400 now. And just sort of like the dynamics of being a private company and being a public company, it's it's all been interesting and has its own sets of uh, really unique and exciting sort of like problems to chew on along the way. Um, things to things to learn, things to do better. It hasn't been boring. That's for sure. Yeah, I was going to say never a dull moment. <laughs> um, so in, in terms of help me understand how the UX team is is set up, you know, you, you've got the group, you've got designers, the designers also, are they the ones that are gathering the customer feedback? Or do you have people dedicated just to that role? Like, uh, yeah, what's the makeup of the UX team? Yeah, so we, I mean, we're a small group. We unfortunately don't really have the luxury of distinguishing between specific UX researchers and UX designers. I don't, I mean, you could use the word uh, full stack designers, right? We kind of, for better or for worse, have to have to wear all those hats. Um, we do have on our product teams, people who are product managers, the, you know, the sort of like uh, <laughs> the holy trinity, right? Where you've got engineering product and UX. Um, you know, we try and still uh, keep that set up on all of the product teams, even in the situation where it's like a centralized UX person or even a centralized product person, try and make sure that that relationship kind of exists in, in all those um, situations. So the burden of requirements gathering is usually kind of a shared one between product and UX. You know, when it comes to sort of the tactical side of things, when it's like, you know, how we're going to implement a feature uh, and, and we're down to sort of straight usability testing, I mean, that's pretty much clearly the domain of UX. 
But at the more like strategic level, it's usually kind of a shared responsibility. From what I'm hearing from you, your your structure is very common. You know, it's interesting you said we don't have the luxury of having a role dedicated to that. I feel mm. like that would be a fun debate to have, maybe not here <laughs> on this podcast, but uh, yeah. you know, does it make sense to have a separate researcher? Is that something that the larger yeah. product organization owns? I mean, I can see both sides, but it, you know, sure. uh, yeah. I mean, it feels to me like the risk that I've seen uh, in other organizations that have just really well-defined research teams, well-staffed research teams, is that you run the risk where the research becomes almost like an academic pursuit, where you do the research, kick it over the fence to the team, and then just cross your fingers that it's going to get implemented into something meaningful. And I guess having it be a split role does sort of knock down that (laughs) barrier between doing work that by necessity kind of needs to be actionable, you know? So I think that's, that's probably a benefit, but, you know, of course the degree uh, or the depth to which we can go in on is, is a little bit different. I mean, so we've kind of learned over time that we get the most bang for our buck really focusing on micro testing as opposed to just like big longitudinal benchmark style studies, because as much as the data that we have collected from doing benchmark studies can be meaningful. Sometimes finding ways to get it into the backlog, get it into the roadmap can be a real challenge. Whereas if we focus on this is the thing that the team's working on right now, and this is the thing that we can help drive decisions um, or uh, drive the um, direction um, with that research. I think that's that's really where we found the sweet spot is for incorporating research into our design yeah. process. Well, it probably also makes you feel more part of the the shared team and the shared responsibility because you're all working together to sort of make that decision and, and, and move along in the process. I think, yes, benchmark testing and longitudinal and those things are very meaningful and can be so helpful for understanding context and looking at competitors and, and all of that. Sure. But the reality is you're right. It's hard to actually, harder, I would say, to actually action on that. So yeah. the idea yeah, of totally. micro testing, I like that phrase. Yeah, I think I maybe picked that up from somebody <laughs> who I had uh, been uh, talking to through user testing, but I think it really does kind of encompass what I feel like. Because yeah, I think in the early days, even when Health Catalyst started working with usertesting.com, we were pretty early in trying to incorporate like voice of user into uh, our design process. And I think have certainly looked up to and, and spent a lot of time um, reading books like uh, Don't Make Me Think or Rocket Surgery, You Made Easy, you know, all the Steve Krug models of like how to do testing and everything. And we've certainly had gone down that road of uh, just sort of building tests that way and doing them at like our yearly conference. And, and the struggle was that you would do the research and we would quantify it and we would go to as great lengths as we could to, you know, turn this into something, you know, like again, the Steve Krug thing, like pick the three most simple things on this list. And we would have our debriefs with the teams. You'd see a lot of nodding heads and a lot of agreement. And like, you know, this was such a great exercise. Thank you for doing this. And then I would find that I I still would have to check in like a month later, three months later, six months later, and we still haven't implemented that thing that we learned six months ago. Because, I mean, our teams have to live in the real world and they've got a thousand things on their backlog that are 
Sometimes even just slotting in some quick fixes. You know, honestly, sometimes the way that some of those fixes happen was that engineers would be sitting on those benchmark tests and they would just like make the fix while they were sitting there like listening to the call or something. And that was the way it would get done, you know. But uh, honestly, yeah, like I, I've, I've just felt like the ways, the way that our team could really like drive meaningful design improvements was to just focus on those sort of like quick hit type things, whether it's like a question um, that comes up in the design process or it's a feature feature that we know we're going to implement and then just spend the time figuring out the optimal way to do this one button on this one page and like we'll get that right and we'll worry about the benchmark tests when the time is right for that too. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. Staying in the moment, if you will. <laughs> yeah, very zen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about metrics or KPIs of like how your team directly or indirectly influences the business. Um, like how do you map what you do to the larger strategy and purpose at, at Health Catalyst? Yeah, I think this is such a good question because I think quantifying UX is is a real challenge. And I think for all of us who run UX teams, I think it's um, it's still, um, it can be, it, it's certainly something that I think is on everybody's mind. I had the chance to attend a Jared Spool seminar um, just this past month, and he had some interesting ideas about getting away from quantifying value by like how many tests we run or how many page hits we get uh, and moving towards sort of starting with the question of how do we make users' lives better? And then how can we quantify that? And and I like that idea. And and certainly like it's it's one of our team's big goals for the coming year to sort of really sit down and spend more time clear, clearly defining KPIs for the team. But I want to be totally honest with you and not just give you a spin answer here because I think uh, I always find that it's most interesting to listen to other uh, folks, uh, other peers who are kind of have to like deal with the same problems I do. So, I mean, like I say, at Catalyst, we're we're a pretty small design team. You know, we're, depending on how you count, we're 10 to 15 design professionals for a company of about 1,400 people. So whatever that ratio is, it's it's not huge. So the honest truth is that probably our biggest KPI to date has been how much of what Health Catalyst customers are seeing has UX had a hand in? Like, in other words, how much of the company are we covering? And like I say, in the very early days when it was just me, like that necessarily had to be pretty small because I knew that like if I tried to swallow the ocean, I would fail, you know? I think either by necessity or or just by personality, like my approach to sort of like building up design at Catalyst has very much been a bottom-up approach as opposed to a top-down one. Kind of focusing on doing the best work that we could on the projects that we decided to tackle. And then hopefully you kind of build an appreciation for design by demonstrating its value in the work. And then, you know, little by little, good work gets noticed. And, you know, design culture sort of grows up that way, where it's sort of like you you notice that this thing is sort of like functioning better or being better received than this other thing. And then the question kind of naturally gets asked about how did that go that's different than this? And so, it's been really it's been really nice to see how that has gone. I really think that looking back on it, if I had come in uh, as that like sole designer in the early days, just like all guns blazing, like this is the way we're going to do it. You must all follow these edicts. I think we were still so early in our journey there that I think it would have kind of just like it would have either fallen on deaf ears or just sort of like led to more barriers when we really were at a point where we needed to be really quick and nimble. And it was like so many of the things that we were learning were sort of necessarily like emergent, right? They they 
they, the definition came as we did it. <laughs> and over time, we were able to codify that as opposed to the opposite. So, I mean, the old cliche, right? It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's definitely something that is something that kind of like takes time and you have to be willing to sort of go along for the ride there uh, and not be um, discouraged <laughs> that these things take time. But yeah, like I say, I think it's been great to watch the appreciation for design grow. And I think especially as a centralized team now, there is a lot more opportunity for us to try and like really start to quantify more tangible metrics around it. But like I say, like just kind of like to some degree, we're kind of at a point now where we do have a degree of coverage, I would say, pretty much across the organization. Could it be bigger in places? Like I think there's plenty of product managers who would argue the answer is yes. You know, again, sort of talking about the things that we have the luxury of, I've always been in a position where it's kind of like doing the most with what we have, as opposed to sort of going and making demands and then, uh, you know, building a team that way. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you're looking at, I don't know, would we say reach or sort of involvement, Sure. you know, how, how you're influencing certain decisions. I think it's a, it's a smart way to, to look at it. And, you know, you're still on your journey, um, building that, that culture. And the reality is like you hire one or two or five UX people and things aren't going to change overnight. It is, totally. you know, uh, it takes time. Yeah. It's helpful for, I'm sure helpful for listeners too, to hear how you think about it. Um, and sure, you'll get to a point where does it make sense to map yourself to, you know, some some harder KPIs or even build your own sure. framework? I mean, you've got Tomer's mm-hmm. um, heart framework, for example, that I've sure. seen be successful at plenty of companies. So there's there's many ways to do it. But I think the first step or one of the the many steps, I guess, is actually just getting people to embrace you. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. And I feel like it's one of those steps that that almost gets skipped over sometimes when we're kind of like pontificating on design, right? It's uh, depends on the company and depends on the culture, right? But I suspect a lot of a lot of organizations there, especially for designers who are coming into a space where they're the the first first one on the ground, right? Like that. I think uh, depending depending on how the organization set up, I think that's like that that is a, a real step. And I think if you can build a firm foundation there, like your ceiling is so much higher than if. Uh, if it's sort of just um, a surface level appreciation, you know, or it's a soundbite or something like that. Yeah. So switching topics here. So you've been in the healthcare space, B2B space um, for the majority of your career. And these, uh, these are different than consumer experiences. Of course, you have the, obviously the business element, but then you also have certain restrictions or constraints with the healthcare space. So can you talk a little bit about like when it comes to customer centricity, when it comes to customer experience, like what's unique about healthcare and B2B and, and how might it compare to other industries like retail or even financial services? Sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, healthcare UX is a pretty, pretty unique space. There's honestly, there's not nearly enough of us um, practicing within this industry. And it's like, I'd like to hope that in the next decade, uh, that changes a ton because potentially because of the regulation and because of the cost associated, a lot of the sort of best practices that we would consider to be like second nature in consumer product UX. I mean, we're five years behind sometimes in in healthcare, which is a real shame because I mean, this is like literally life-saving technology. So you're absolutely right. I mean, lots of regulations, and I think we're probably pretty similar to finance in that way, you know. Um, and and also, 
just like the complexity of the data and privacy concerns, uh, HIPAA, all of these things um, are just a day-to-day. There's there's definitely a domain expertise that comes along with working in healthcare. And some of that is just even the superficial kind of being able to speak the language of the industry, which I don't know that is unique, but I think, I mean, healthcare certainly has it. I, I would say like, I remember situations working as a creative director in agency settings where it kind of feels like the first conversations you're having with a new customer, they're kind of feeling out whether you know the acronyms or can speak the language or uh, whether whether you're sort of like part of the club in a way. So there's absolutely acquired domain expertise that comes along with working in healthcare for a while. The, the B2B thing and healthcare thing, I, I'm going to mix them together a little bit because I think there probably are some direct to consumer healthcare products, which would be closer to other consumer products. So um, I, I think my experience has primarily been in the B2B healthcare space. So, I mean, in, in that sense, I mean, we're rarely trying to convert like sales, like the software is the product. Um, so we're not trying to make conversions like you would at a retail site type setting. And, and actually, I mean, as I kind of said at the beginning, it's, it's not even the software that's the product, it's the outcomes that are the product in the case of what Health Catalyst does. So, so in that sense, I think it's actually quite interesting and potentially kind of unique where we, the space that we work in, because we have a much smaller user base and we also have a pretty strong distinction between the buyer and the user. Um, in, in our case, the buyer is not the user in almost all situations. And in many cases, they're very different from each other. And so that creates some pretty interesting discussions between, you know, strategy versus uh, implementation and sort of how you sell something as opposed to just like how you actually build something. And so that's that's a very unique challenge. As I would kind of add to that too, I would say to some extent, you know, if if we deploy a tool that like five analysts use at a hospital system, but that leads to an intervention that saves X number of lives and saves Y number of dollars, then that was a successful product engagement, you know, uh, even though we had five users of the product, right? So I think that's that's a pretty big difference than the space that a lot of consumer products have to operate in. So you can imagine it can be quite a bit trickier for us to run like a A-B test on different user populations when we're working with such a like a niche audience. The thing that I wanted to kind of throw into the mix there by way of like color commentary is I think in the UX field, um, we often hold up the practices of sort of like the big Silicon Valley UX teams as like the gold standard. And no question, like the surgical approach that a lot of those groups can take to UX is is really enviable. But I think for a lot of years at Health Catalyst, I was trying to kind of put a round peg in a square hole as that as far as that goes. I was trying to apply the practices of B2C company in a B2B space. And and as a result, I think I was missing a a really great opportunity that was kind of right in front of my face. Because we have a really targeted, smaller user base, our users are potentially a lot closer to us than they would be in a B2C situation. So we have the opportunity to have really direct, meaningful connections with our customers in a way that you might not get to in a B2C situation. And I think it's funny because in the past, you know, we'd have conversations about how to streamline the delivery of content for the sake of scale. I think we overlook the fact that in many ways, the secret sauce for a company like Health Catalyst, the thing that's made us successful in a lot of, a lot of ways is the person-to-person connections that we kind of foster, especially being kind of a split product services company. You know, there's oftentimes 
there's there's no uh, there's no product engagement without some degree of service engagement, right? Because they're sort of like, I've got all this data, but how do I interpret it? And so maybe that's the clinical team working with them in terms of how that can lead to an intervention. You know, so for example, I mean, many times when a customer has a question about our product, I mean, instead of digging into our documentation or going to one of our community sites, their first instinct is to just reach out to their uh, customer success lead, like, like our account managers. And for a long time, we would talk about that like, that was a bad thing or like a problem we have to solve. But I think in a lot of ways, that type of relationship is really what's what's kind of made us successful, you know? And so I think what that's kind of crystallized in my head over time is that UX at Health Catalyst is in an amazing position to facilitate more and more of those person-to-person connections because we aren't product owners and we aren't the engineers. Uh, we can be kind of like an honest broker when it comes to interacting with customers, hearing their opinions, uh, talking about how they implement solutions. You know, something I've learned a lot from the usertesting.com team is in how uh, you all have approached your customer advisory boards. What I love about what you do is I love the way that you create a space basically for design professionals to talk candidly amongst each other. And you kind of just get out of the way and facilitate that conversation. And I think we've heard from our customers that there's just a real hunger for that same kind of connection um, because a lot of them are kind of on islands within their organizations as well. Facilitating the connections between users now, not buyers again in this case, because I think UX is in the really great position to connect users to users, whereas a lot of our other groups are focused on buyers to buyers. And so, yeah, that's like, I mean, as I move into sort of next year and and thinking about immediate goals for me and the UX team at Catalyst is really amplifying and facilitating more of those direct interactions between customers, because I feel like that's just one of those things that like, maybe you don't have the, it, it just wouldn't be possible when you have hundreds of thousands of, of users. Um, but when we're smaller, we would almost be missing an opportunity not to take advantage of that. Pros and cons, but I think the most important thing is recognizing the space that you're in and then like not trying to make it something that it's not, but trying to work as effectively within the sort of like rules of engagement within that space. Yeah, I love I love your point around you kind of starting out and and trying to sort of apply what you see what or what you were reading or, or seeing for mm-hmm. best in class UX teams that exist in other companies. And I think probably many people have, have tried to do that. And the reality is like, you have to sort of assess, you know, your working environment, the space you're in, the industry, what's going to be appropriate for the team and where they're at and kind of go from there. Um, But it's a, I mean, there's very humbling to kind of look back at that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, it's, it's great for inspiration always that we can sort of hear uh, what each other, how everybody's approaching it in their own situations. But yeah, I think just appreciating that they're really, I don't think there ever is like a one size fits all um, for a UX organization at, at any company, you know, it's just like, it's so driven by like the space, the dynamics of the uh, just the personality of the company in some ways can drive it a lot too, you know? So yeah, I think the sooner um, that especially like UX leaders can sort of realize that taking the pulse of of where you are and then, you know, applying what you can of the books you're reading and the things you're hearing, but recognizing that your own implementation of that is going to be your own and and it should be. Yes, absolutely. You know, you mentioned your, you know, your team is what, 10 or 15 people, you're supporting an organization of 1400. So you got a lot going on, you got a lot of different stakeholders, people that you're, you're supporting. 
Um, and when you think about, you know, how, your impact and creating, you know, a great experience, seamless designs, how, how have you and your team approached this at Health Catalyst? Like essentially, like how are you scaling uh, yourself and your team? Yeah, this is kind of fun because right now we're moving a little bit from like strategy to tactics. And uh, that's certainly where my heart lies. This has evolved just like everything else that in the early days, you know, it was one thing and it's something very different now, but has also been kind of driven by the company scaling and the UX team trying to keep, keep, uh, keep measure with that. So when I first started early, early, early days, uh, and I was working on that very first product I was working on a Catalyst. Uh, was approached by our COO uh, about developing a digital style guide for the company. And I had to just sort of say say to him, I I could do that, but I just don't even know what would go in there right now because I don't think we know what a health catalyst application is at this point. And so it would kind of be just coming up with... um, standards for standards sake at this point. So he graciously backed off on that and gave us the time to sort of get a few cycles of product development under our belt before we really took the step to start to formalize some design standards around what um, makes up a health catalyst application. And, you know, again, in the early days, uh, sort of just taking it one step at a time, we um, we started just with like the PDF version of a style guide, which I think probably every company has at some point in their history had some version of. And we version controlled the PDF, right? So it was kind of at least in some, you know, methodical state of evolution. Um but what we ran into, adoption wasn't a problem. Teams were really excited to have those things to follow because it's one less thing for them to think about. But what I was finding is it was creating a certain amount of oversight responsibility then for our very small team at that point, because for every like button standard, say, that was in the PDF, there were 12 different implementations of that on different teams. And it led to sort of a certain amount of spot checking, like, is that actually five pixel rounding or did you do seven pixel rounding over there or something? And you know, everything more or less looks the same, but it's kind of not the same. And so we were kind of like in the ballpark, but I think as anybody else uh, who's a UX professional can appreciate, sometimes those are even more like nails on a chalkboard when it kind of looks right, but it's not exactly right. Like those can be even worse than just glaringly wrong, right? The opportunity we had to really sort of take the next step on that was when all of our uh, our CTO at the time um, just made the sort of difficult decision to say all of our product teams needed to align under one tech stack, which, you know, might sound crazy, that, but in our early days, again, it was a little bit of Wild West, right? So we had a lot of different product teams using different technologies, and there wasn't a lot of opportunity to necessarily share. But when all of Health Catalyst aligned under the Angular framework, um, it meant all of a sudden, like, there's something connecting all of these tools together. And we can now think about sharing a UI library. That sort of started us down really interesting course of um, building uh, what now exists as our design system today at Catalyst. And, you know, we're hardly the first uh, uh, company to ever come up with our own design system. Um, But I think it's a kind of interesting story because, again, to the sort of concept that every company kind of has their own path to go down. In the case of our design system, we as a UX team didn't have any dedicated development resources that we could apply to working on this. And so again, just kind of out of necessity, we have an innovation day once a month, a catalyst that we call open space. We had a session uh, in an open space several years ago uh, where we brought together front end developers from a lot of different teams across the company and uh, just said, 
hey, we think this is probably a good time for us to try and start pulling together a UI library that everybody can share. So you guys, hopefully you're kind of like not reinventing the wheel every time you need to make a button or, or a popover or something like that. And so Health Catalyst was kind enough to allow us to do that in an open source fashion because, you know, we really wanted this to just be something that everybody can kind of have a hand in, feel like everybody has some agency in the development of this. And we even had visions of uh, sort of making this something that like the community could, uh, you know, pull from that it wasn't just Health Catalyst per se. But anyway, so we approached it that way. There was a ton of like early energy around building this thing up, lots of people contributing, lots of excitement from uh, just sort of like something new starting. And in my mind, I think in the early days, I was mostly concerned about just having alignment visually around similar things, you know, but what we learned pretty fast as um, people started contributing to the library was that a UI library, or I would say even a design system to a large degree is a little bit like a glacier where like what you see is just that bit that's above the water, but everything that's below the water is in many ways, the driver between success and failure of like whether people are going to adopt this UI library or engage in. And what I mean by that is like the quality of the code, quality of the documentation, the design support, the development support. There's just so much sort of rigor that um, if it's not there, it at best is frustrating to developers. At worst, can be a huge business problem because if you release a UI library that everybody's using and it introduces new bugs, you just broke all of your tools or something like that, you know? So it's, it be, it's there's a, there's a real um, burden to uh, make something that's, if not bulletproof, as close as possible. So, you know, we had to sort of start formalizing some things like putting a steering committee together to ensure that there were standards in place that we were following. And, you know, we, we kind of did that by pulling like one developer, one lead developer from all the different product teams to kind of have some say and, how that worked, um, we had to figure out ways to sort of automate some of the automation or sorry, automate some of the documentation that we were doing around the tool. Um, we also kind of had to learn what our developers wanted in terms of documentation. And, you know, in the early days, we thought just having good API documentation, like just having documenting the parameters that went into something was the most important thing. But what we have come to learn is that really like what most of the developers that we work with want are just examples, like just show me examples of how this works so I can just copy and paste this thing and put it in. And we've kind of come to realize in the like, you know, the page for our design system, like if there's not an example for a feature, it's almost like it doesn't exist because it's like if they can't see it there, then it's like probably buried somewhere else in um, API documentation that no one has time to read. So that, I mean, that was a huge step forward, kind of formalizing that. But then what's been, I mean, if I kind of like fast forward the story here a little bit, what's been really cool is as Kashmir has become more mature, it was originally primarily focused on our web development teams. But, but you know, Health Catalyst, as I said, I mean, we're products and services and we're not just web applications. We work with a lot of business intelligence tools like Tableau, Power BI, and we have uh, teams that are doing knowledge development, like I say, around like sort of clinical topics and, and a lot of other corners of the house that aren't touched by um, web development, but sort of realizing that Kashmir had kind of become a, a standard that made a lot of sense to be applied uh, in other ways around the company. And so then taking the germ of this design system, which was really just a UI library to start out with, and then has over time become something more like a design system as we've brought like our technical writers into the fold and they have a corner of Kashmir now and uh, bringing our analytic services organization into it and defining 
how can we sort of take these standards that were originally designed designed for web apps and apply them to like a Tableau template? And so how can how can we make sure that Health Catalyst analytics tool that's being deployed in Tableau really looks and feels as much as possible with a web application uh, as well? And so sort of seeing seeing the design system kind of grow that way. I mean, 100%, that has become the way that the UX team has managed, I think, to scale itself and continue to scale itself through the organization. We kind of treat it like a product almost at this point. Like actually, Cashmere is actually in our product plan tool um, as like a dependency that kind of sits in you know, a lot of other products backlogs, you know, that it's sort of like we expect if they need a feature to be built, like Cashmere is going to try and maintain that. And so, yeah, I think that the way that the design system has kind of become our product, if you want to think about it that way, um, has, has played a big role in how we've been able to sort of like work as a small group within a much bigger company. Yeah. I mean, that's no small feat. I mean, you've accomplished a ton by, by building that. I also wonder too, like, and you've probably already thought of this, but you've introduced so much, uh, well, consistency to the experience, of course, but also efficiency. You know, I think when we chatted before, you were talking about how, you know, there were an- there are analysts involved that don't really, this isn't their expertise. And if they can go sure. grab the resources they need, it saves them a ton of time and a ton of thought process. So could be another angle yeah, that's a- like ROI and metric and things like that. That's a great one. And of course, like the challenge, of course, is like how to like really quantify that. But I think you're absolutely right. And it was very eye-opening to me to just how much we were asking our analysts to be designers. I mean, they had to put something, they had to put a tool out there. And so there was no way around the fact that they had to somehow design it, you know, but oftentimes when I think someone's asked to sort of be a designer without having had any design training, you're kind of at the whim of whoever is calling the shots there, right? Whoever's running the project or paying the money. You know, I think the thing that we really struggled with a lot of our analytics tools in the early days was just that sense of trying to throw everything under the sun into it, right? Just like every filter and every toggle and every metric and, you know, these just giant overloaded dashboards. And that's just one of those things, again, where we can sort of free up the space for our analysts to focus on the things that they're really good at and sort of give them some of the tools to just get past that sort of blank sheet of paper phase. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think our analysts don't want to be the designer, you know, I mean, I think they're happy to have uh, input into that space. The thing that they're so good at is, is being able to pull these insights uh, from just these vast pools of data. And we just want to like, we want to equip them to focus their time on the thing that is is most meaningful. Awesome. Well, we're going to switch gears a little bit to what we call the lightning round. So we do this with every guest that comes on the show. We ask them the same questions. Is there a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? Um, I appreciate this one because I'm a big reader. So I will also say that when I read, uh, it's usually for entertainment. <laughs> so I'm going to go two angles on this one. I'll give you the book that I, the, my favorite book of the year. And then I assume you're probably looking to some degree on books that are relevant to the topic here. So I'll give you both. My favorite, I'm a big sci-fi fantasy guy. And there's a book called Gideon the Ninth, which I just finished recently by Tamison Muir. It is the most original gonzo just original, incredible story. And I highly recommend the audiobook version of that. Um, the narrator is incredible. If you're looking for books that are more on a design angle, 
we spend a lot of time thinking about data visualization at Catalyst, as you might imagine. So I've got two that I really love there. We kind of did a book club in our UX team uh, on one recently called Effective Data Storytelling by an uh, author named Brent Dykes. It's uh, the subtext is uh, how to drive change with data, narrative, and visuals. You know, that's kind of like right in our sweet spots. Learned a ton from how he approached that. Uh, and then the other one is kind of just my go-to. Uh, it's a book called Good Charts by an author named Scott Baranato. It's like the Harvard Business School Press, I think, publishes that one. But I just, it's like, there are many, many tomes out there, like academic treatises on like data visualization. And and I like that Scott Baranato wrote a book that's really, it's about like a half an inch thick compared to like five inches thick, you know, and, and he distills a lot of really useful practical data visualization techniques. Uh, and it's the one that I, when I teach courses on data viz, that's the one I reference the most. So that's a great one. And uh, just day to day, The Economist magazine um, does a newsletter called Off the Charts, where they do a deep dive like once a month into a piece of data viz that they did, which is always super fun to read because they get really down into the weeds, like very nerdy stuff. And it's a lot of fun if you're interested in that. Oh, I definitely want to check out that newsletter. Also, that last book that you you mentioned, The Good Charts. I feel yeah. like every person who works on a presentation sounds <laughs> like they should be reading that book. Yeah, we um, all kind of I play have an in appreciation the for great visualizations because yeah. they're <laughs> they're kind of few and far between. Um, but yeah, no, thank totally. you for that. Um, sure. How about a piece of advice that you'd give someone um, that's trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback? I think the best advice I could give on this one is questions always come up in the design of anything. And very often I have one opinion and you have another opinion. <laughs> Back in the days before data-driven design, uh, which is sort of where I feel like I kind of started in my career, uh, it often came down to just really one person's preference versus another. And the final decision kind of came down to who's paying the bill or who's the most convincing or who yells the loudest or any number of other things like that. What you can really do by investing in customer feedback is that you can very quickly change the conversation. If you can really just spin up a test and come back with data, then suddenly it's not about my opinion versus your opinion. It's about here's an idea, here's some data on how users responded. And based on that data, what actions are we going to take? And so you're really separating the sort of like personal quality of the question to a much more just scientific methods uh, sort of um, decision that we can all have a much more productive conversation on, you know? And I think especially when you look at like potentially like UI patterns that have been entrenched in an application for a long time, and there's just a strong pull to continue doing certain things because that's just the way our stakeholders are used to them, regardless of whether it could be improved, you know? I think the most important thing is you can just fundamentally change the discussion and change the conversation by basing it on data as opposed to someone's feelings or opinions, you know, which is an entirely different world. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of removing the um, the opinions, removing um, the subjectivity from it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yep. And I mean, even that data introduces, especially if it's got customer feedback or something like that, everybody interprets it a little bit different. Yeah. And you have to be willing to concede that you could be wrong, <laughs> you know, and that, that, I mean, it happens, right. You know, even as designers with all of our years and years of instincts, I mean, we are wrong plenty of times, but I think the great thing about being a designer is it's kind of our job to, you know, come up with ideas and try them out and then, uh, you know, pivot accordingly. So, I mean, I think, yeah, <laughs> you know, 
as as you know more than anybody else probably Janelle I mean you can spin a test in a way that it, it is useless but like if you can actually run a test the right way um and be neutral about the data and then have a real like just neutral conversation around what have we learned here, then I think everybody wins there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So one last question, you know, given we're in the experience space, if you're anything like I am, I'm like constantly evaluating the world around me and noticing bad things and noticing good things. So can you share a recent like great experience that you had? Yeah, this I think this is great because um, this is one of my favorite interview questions. So uh, I mean, <laughs> interviewing uh, potential hires. So this is an uh, awesome, awesome question. Yeah, I had to think a little bit about this one, kind of comb through my phone and other things to sort of think about what uh, what what was a great one recently. And and I do have one. I'm happy to say that really, really impressed me. And the cool thing about it is I had the chance recently to go to a design conference here in, in Utah. We call it the front conference. It's our UX and product industry conference. And a gentleman named um, Daniel Falabella, who's the director of product for Duolingo, um, was speaking there. And uh, he gave a great talk and it was really compelling. And so when recently I kind of as I have it many times in my life, had the urge to really focus on picking up another language. Duolingo was sort of at the top of my mind, pulled down their app. I have been just so impressed with all of the things that they have thought through in terms of making a language learning experience incredibly gamified and really like sticky. And, and it's just, there's so many just like little things that, you know, you appreciate as a designer um, that you see that like, that look almost effortless in their application. But I know, especially having listened to Daniel, that, you know, they chewed on these things for a long time and they just, they're just really, they work. So I want to give a shout out to Duolingo. And I also want to give a shout out to Miro, which is another tool that we use for um, actually uh, doing a lot of UX research analysis. Um, but Miro is just one of those tools where uh, when I got in there to use it, every keyboard shortcut, every place where my finger wanted to go, even with like copy pasting and all these different things just worked the way I expected it to. And so I don't know whether they talked to a lot of uh, Adobe Creative Suite customers or they just kind of knew who their audience was, but it's always really, really nice when you get into a tool and it just kind of like fits like a glove, right? You don't have to spend a lot of time just banging your head against it. It just kind of works. And so yeah. those two. Yeah, no, those are great. Those are great. I've heard many good things about Duolingo and I can totally attest to Miro being something that's been amazing. Um, that and Mural, you know, during the remote working and yes. see the shift to um, analysis moving from, you know, back in the day when we used to put stickies <laughs> Whiteboards. on the yeah, wall, sure. right? Yeah. Infinity diagramming. It's like, yeah. oh, now we can do that with a, with a tool like Miro and Mural. It's like, that's a game changer. That's right. That was the big driver for me to, to find those yeah. tools was like, how can we take this thing that we used to do in a room and do it <laughs> across the country? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Andrew. Well, it was awesome having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. And, you know, it's just so fun to talk about these things with uh, people who uh, appreciate the, uh, the, the challenges and the, you know, the ups and the downs of what we do. And so just uh, grateful that you've created this space and, connecting all of us design professionals to each other. So thank you. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play. So you can never miss a good episode. 
And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 